Today is Saturday, March the 2nd, and welcome back to another Truth Perspective show, everyone. I'm your host today, Ilan Martin, and with me in the studio, we have Corey Schenk. Hello, everybody. And Harrison Keeley. Hello. Today, we'll be revisiting some of the themes that we were discussing last week, uh, in particular, uh, two books. The first is Salafi Jihadism, The History of an Idea by Shiraz Maher. And the second is Jewish History, Jewish Religion, The Weight of 3,000 Years by Israel Shachak. Uh, as we got into the books and the ideas about the history of these predominant religions, we found that there were a lot of pathological uh, ideas that the two had in common. That if you scratch the surface of the most religious uh, parts of uh, these religions, you found the types of thinking that uh, only Lobachevsky could describe um, with some amount of uh, specificity. And so we were looking at these pathological uh, ideas that, um, that were carried through many centuries and that inform both religions, Islam and Judaism, uh, in their most radical forms, even today. So we'll be getting uh, or revisiting those um, things that they have in common. Uh, we'll be delving a little bit deeper into uh, what makes them pathological. And we'll be looking at some contemporary stories that make very clear um, the, the difficulties in uh, revealing just what lies behind or beneath uh, these two very pervasive religions. So on that note, uh, we were going to begin with the Salafi Jihadism book today. Harrison, I know that you've been examining uh, the book a little further. Do you want to start us off? Yeah. Um, over the last couple of shows that we did on this book, um, we managed to talk about just like two and a half of the main, like five points in it. Because he divides it up into kind of the five areas of uh, doctrine in which like the Salafi jihadists differ um, or deviate from both like other Salafi groups and then Islam in general. Mm -hmm. So we talked about jihad and um, al-Wala, wal-Bara, and a little bit about tawhid. So I'm going to be getting into the other two um, other two ideas, takfir and hakimiyah. Not sure how to pronounce that last one correctly. But um, before I get into those, I just want to go back and give some kind of overall stuff to, to kind of lead into that. First, um, in the book, uh, Maher gives a couple definitions for ideology. And this kind of is uh, you know, important. To, to, we, we've gone over ideology um, and ideologies in you know, these shows, these past shows. But um, I just want to read some of the actual definitions that you know, scholars have tried to give to ideology. So Maher writes, A brief note on ideology is, needed, uh, is also needed, given that it's for, it forms the cornerstone of what is being examined here, Salafi Jihadism. In its most basic construction, ideology is distinct from the political way of thinking by attempting to bring together a series of speculative abstractions into a coherent doctrine in the pursuit of utopia, or at the very least, a better way of living. He also quotes uh, Hannah Arendt, who argued that ideologies are isms 
which to the satisfaction of their adherents can explain every occurrence by deducing it to a single premise. Um, and so, of course, you know, in some of the ideologies we've talked about in the past, you can you can fit Marxism in there. You can fit, uh, of course, Salafi jihadism and uh, you know Talmudic Judaism. And but of course, there are you know there are people who think who give it a kind of more vague definition because anytime you're dealing with a, a concept like this, you know, people give a definition, and then you'll get tons of other people who will give a different definition. You can find that in the in the study of religions and economics and you know all kinds of politics just go to any wikipedia page for any ism and you'll find like at least 10 or 12 variations on that ism and then um you know 10 or 12 definitions for each of those variations on the ism it's just a <clears throat> kind of a minefield <clears throat> but um one other thing that he notes is that um, um well he calls these in reference to that last quote, he, basically ideologies are satiating, like they give you something, they give the adherents something, and it's usually that satisfaction in finding the one answer for everything. So in that context, he writes that satiating ideologies consequently provide their adherents with a form of common cause, a unifying mission, and sense of purpose for bringing society together. So this is why ideologies are so effective, is because, you know, who can't get behind that, right? I mean, at at any point in anyone's life, and especially in, in points of history where there are great crises going on, I mean, that's what brings people together, a common cause, a unifying mission, sense of purpose. And that's what most people are looking for, I think, even if they're not aware of it, that, that sense of um, you know, nihilism and anime that uh, you know, modern people feel. It's because they're, they're lacking purpose in their lives, and they're lacking um, you know, a connection to, to other people that brings them into that kind of social harmony with a, with a group that, that you'll find in... Uh, in well, more traditional societies, and even just more traditional religious groups, where you've, uh, w w which can be seen today too, you know, small church communities and things like that, where that do provide a sense of uh, common cause and purpose for for individuals. Problem, of course, is when that ideology gets is then used for a, sp uh, a particular purpose. Um, well, I'd say there are at least two main problems. One is um, the the psychology behind the the ideology, like we were talking about last week and in previous shows, and then also when that purpose, when that ideology gets used for um, usually a political purpose, anytime, pretty much any time it gets used for like a revolutionary political purpose, you're going to get um, bad things happening. Usually massacres and uh, you know widespread violence, and uh, that just seems to be the way things play out. And I, I would just add, Harrison, it seems like there's an emotional component. Uh, that you were alluding to there, which is that, you know, people become so identified emotionally with their ideologies. They become so fervent, so identified, uh, that there there is no uh, critical distance that permits them to take a step back, uh, in many cases, not in all cases, of course. And, um, you know, there, there's no faculty that's been trained in them to to look at their uh, ideology that they follow uh, with with any amount of uh, space. So so they're you know they are possessed by you know and we've used the term before. It's nothing new. Ideological possession. Mm -hmm. um, so th this in, in and of itself is is I think what the big problem is in discussing these things. People people don't realize that they are uh, literally possessed um, with with an idea. And since they've never been trained to think on things, really think on things, uh, with any amount of, of clarity or, or rigor, 
um, they become, uh, you know, they become these embodiments of it. There and there's no, you know, whatever might be constructive from a particular ideology is thrown out the window in favor of of this kind of emotional, reactive, um, uh, almost non-thinking uh, behavior. Yeah, and I think part of the, part of the attraction is the utopian ideal of of these things, and that's I think what kind of um, anchors in people's minds. It's one of the things that uh, one of the contributors I think that you know, just goes towards that kind of um, zealous kind of like fanatic um, adherence to an ideology like that. And just to give an example of um, of like that in practice, the way it looks. Um, this is a quote from. Um, a um, which guy is this? This is um, from Maududi, who was a uh, pretty famous um, like Pakistani intellectual and Islamist. So not necessarily well, he wasn't a jihadist, but um, an Islamist in the sense of you know political reform through Islam and uh, you know bringing basically creating an Islamic state, not necessarily in the term you know in the way people think of it now because of ISIS, but you know. Uh, an Islamic state, maybe like you know, Saudi Arabia is an is a, is an Islamic state of sorts, and uh, I mean, even Iran is it's a Shia one, but uh, still. So this is a quote from Maududi. He's looking back at uh, at history, like Islamic history, and uh, like the the period described in the Quran, which, as we described previously, isn't necessarily an accurate portrayal of of history. But um, using that as a model, this is what he writes: Arabia had the most singular government of of the time. Based as it was on the principle of the sovereignty of God and the vice-regency of man, the law of the land was Islamic. The administration of the state lay in the hands of the honest and pious people. The country had no trace of violence, oppression, injustice, or immorality. Peace, truth, justice, and honesty reigned supreme everywhere. Many of the people of the country had come to possess the highest moral attributes because they were honest in worshiping God and obeying him. Kind of goes on after that, but you get this—you know—this vi- this visage of, uh, or visage vision of, the perfect society where everything was great, nothing went wrong, there was no violence, no oppression, no injustice whatsoever. Um, this was this sounds like a, you know the the kind of communist utopia or um, or any other kind of utopia that people can imagine. I mean, everything was perfect. So this is the vision that that Salafists too look back on and wish to bring about. They want uh, like a utopia where everything is fine because, and this is the kind of the logic implicit in that kind of belief, because the, the laws of creation and of human society were given by God, they can't be wrong, and they, they must lead to a utopia, because otherwise they wouldn't be divine laws. And because those divine laws were given and instituted in the, the, you know, the first years of Islam, then it must have been a utopia. And so if, if only we could institute those laws and uh, put them into practice, then we would have a utopia. And because we want a utopia, we must therefore institute those laws. And it's kind of like this closed circle of, of logic where like, you, there's no way out of it if you accept all those premises. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so for the people that actually believe in the ideology, I mean, that is, that is their vision, and they, they truly believe that it, that it will happen or that it could happen. Um, of course, it can't for various reasons. Well, I was just going to say, and then if you don't uh, accept those premises, then you're an apostate, and you're not a you're not mm-hmm. a Muslim. And mm-hmm. what are you doing in in this country? And then, like you pointed out, there's uh, 
the biggest issue is that at this period of time that he's talking about the creation of um you know the first uh islamic um you know the first islamic rulers that were the companions of muhammad uh allegedly they there is no evidence that they existed that uh this this period just didn't it never happened and it's so recent in history too that it's kind of mind-boggling that you could posit such a golden age in with in such a recent uh span of time that anybody could just look back and say no that actually didn't exist it's one thing to posit a golden age that you can go back to that was mm-hmm. thousands and you know thousands of years ago, but it's another thing to say you know it happened five hundred years ago, but you know there's just no evidence of it. Mm-hmm. Well, um, so like we said last week, the the way in which Salafi jihadism has kind of developed is to um, to tie the belief, like the the faith of Islam, with specific practices. And those specific practices in this case are the establishment of a certain form of government and its achievement through warfare. So those are uh, like hakamiya and jihad. Like jihad is the way to establish an Islamic state, um, you know, the, the form of God's sovereignty. That is the kind of innovation of Salafi jihadism has been over, you know, for the past 30 years over how it's developed. And one other thing that we observed was that the you know, as Lobachevsky talks about, this is kind of like a rule. the The initial schizoidal ideology gets, um, um, you know, slowly it slowly deviates from it, the original intentions of the the you know schizoid ideologues who come up with the ideology to the point where even those ideologues um, um, end up criticizing how things are going. So there there are a couple examples of this, or several examples of this in the book that he lays out. Like there was a you know, an early um, Salafist jihadist uh, scholar or cleric. Um, his name was Saeed Imam al-Sharif. And um, just to give a, a little um, example of how that changed, uh, I'm just going to read a quote from here. So Paul Kapolnik argues that when Sharif rebuked al-Qaeda for its liberal application of the principle, this is a principle of... Um, um, like the having to do with killing um, killing civilians, basically, like uh, in, in warfare, uh, human shields too. So he says that in his in his uh, when he rebuked this principle, he was really condemning the movement for having produced quote a self-serving, deviant, and lawless killing on mass doctrine. So this is how one of the original theorists came to see you know how uh, Al Qaeda actually put the his ideas into practice. And this is the case with most of these like early clerics, like they're all now critics of the like Salafi jihadist movement, even though it's their works that were adopted by all of these jihadists and which um, arguably um, went a long way to producing that. Of course, there are many factors, but their writings were one of them. And so what basically happens is that the the ideology is uh, appropriated, operationalized and uh, and brutalized by the people that actually put it into practice. And this happens in every revolutionary movement that adopts an ideology like this. It happened in, uh, you know, in Russia in the in the the communist revolution. It happens in in uh, Ukraine with the the, the neo fascist kind of you know ethno nationalist revolution in in twenty fourteen, and um, you know it's just kind of one of those one of those laws of of psychology and history and groups, you know, that a ponderological law, if you will, that just happens over and over. And so, 
Um, I guess I'll, I'll give one more example of this. This, is ha this has to do with the idea of uh, takfir, and takfir is basically the process of excommunication. So it is the, the, the method of establishing a group, the group's boundaries. So who, who classifies as a member of our group, in this case, like you know, the true um, Ummah, the true Muslim community, and who doesn't, who is an apostate, who is a non-believer. And so in that context, um, this underscored the need to exercise takfir carefully um, um, with due consideration, first being given to an individual's personal circumstances and beliefs. Because this is basically some, one of the like, uh, practical problems that, that uh, um, these groups have run into in the process of excommunication. It's like, well, how do we really apply this? Do we, do we basically mind read? Um, if a person like, says they believe something but they don't actually believe it, um, is that and we think that they don't actually believe it? Is that grounds for you know pronoun pronouncing takfir on them or you know basically what are the limits? So it so he goes on. It marked a serious point of rupture between fighters and theorists within the Salafi jihadi tradition, where the former regarded these nuances as intellectual luxuries born of of abstraction. Their practical consequence would be to render jihad unworkable. What they needed were binary distinctions. And this is what they would act upon. So when, the, when, when bad ideas like this get put into practice, this is what it leads to. It leads, leads to this binary choice. It's like, you're, and you saw this with George Bush, you're, right? you're, on, you're either with us or against us. And that plays itself out um, in, a, in a particularly brutal fashion. It's like, at least in, in, in 2003, you know, or 2001, 2002, whenever Bush said that, um, like many Americans could disagree with that. And technically, you know, Bush would have classified them as one of the enemy, but, you know, they didn't get rounded up and executed in the streets and thrown in a mass grave, as happens in, as happened and ha, as has happened in Iraq and Syria in the last five years, so, or more than five. So one example, two or two examples of just how that shift has played out um, and just kind of like supporting the what Lobachevsky has said about these ideologies and the way the, the way they shift in this ponderogenic process. Um, so moving on, um, I talked about uh, you know jihad al wala wal bara. Those are two of these five things that have to do with like the the protection of the group. So this this is like establishing the boundaries and um, you know the in group out group status. And like I just mentioned, takfir is the other one of those protective mechanisms. And then the other two. Um, Tawhid and Hakimiyah are actually for the promotion. This is like the, the active like spread of the ideology. It's it's um, um, basically these are our beliefs. This is our like our form of government. This is how we present ourselves to the world. So that's kind of like the distinction that there, there's like two groups in these five uh, five things, five concepts. And um, so if we if we look at an example, like uh, I'll get into takfir a little bit. So, like I mentioned, takfir is the method of excommunication, and um, so uh, another quote from the book: "From here, it is not difficult to see how Salafi jihadist theorists have developed this doctrine into a coercive political mantra of communal conformity. Dissent, opposition, reform, and skepticism are all heresies. Basically, uh, like through takfir, through these." Through this strong boundary, in-group, out-group boundary, and um, and through the like the the extreme way in which it is enforced, 
um, you know, it's very easy to to get kicked out, for instance, and to become be become excommunicated. And entire groups are are excommunicated just by virtue of you know their non-belief in you know any of these doctrines. And that's what this uh, that's what this kind of leads to. So there's this kind of like black and white thinking. So because for for these types of people, the greatest sin is to deny God, and that means that just a statement of faith um, isn't enough. Like like I mentioned, it needs works, it needs actions to accompany that faith and to prove that faith. And um, so the ab uh, I'll just read one of my notes here the according to these theorists like the absence of sharia therefore necessitates rebellion so <clears throat> and anyone who do, who disagrees with you is an apostate or a, a non-believer so it, it creates again it creates this like perfect circle of logic where it's like if you accept the premises it's inescapable and there and it's like okay uh, b because this you are therefore evil and i am justified in killing you because the nowhere in that circle do we find things like universal values, um, you know, for like the 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 value of life or the you know the, the the rights of the individual or anything like that. It's like no, you're part of this group. You're part of you're part of this group. Therefore, you're evil. Therefore, you get nothing and you deserve nothing, and uh, or you deserve worse than nothing. So, this kind of black and white thinking is also sh shows up in. Um, you know, this is like all, all these things are understandable. Like you can you can see why all these things come about, and especially like the the view of the West, for instance. You can understand how these views came about. But just to give some examples of them, like um, um, I'll read a few other quotes. So, in rejecting their colonial experiences, these thinkers, like these are kind of like some of the early theorists, the early Arab reformists. Um, these thinkers were casting aside everything associated with Western political structures which were viewed as godless, exploitative, and decadent. So this is the problem with black and white thinking. It's like, yes, can you find examples of godless, exploitative, and decadent things about, like, especially the colonial Western past? Well, of course you can. Now, does that mean that absolutely everything and every individual and, like, just anything you can imagine about Western society mm -hmm. was godless, exploitative, and decadent? Like, that's just a, an absurd statement. And it's, it's absurd in any context when you make like sweeping generalizations like that. But that's what these guys are all about, is making sweeping generalizations. So, you know, you've got another one. Um, this was from um, Kurshid Ahmad, who was um, an Indian. And, uh, or no, maybe this was... No, this was, this was Maududi again, the, the Pakistani intellectual. Um, you know, as he put it, Islam is the very antithesis of secular Western democracy. So, like, when we see all this, all these things about, like, the clash of civilizations, um, it's really, um, like, two sides who both believe the same thing, even if they're both wrong. It's like, so, on the one hand, we have all these, like, conservative think tanks and, and um, you know, people in the West, uh, you know, like, like um, Brzezinski and um, Fukuyama and whoever the other main guy is that had like had books in the 90s about this like they've got this idea of the class of, uh, clash of civilizations like we are totally incompatible and it, therefore like you know a conflict is inevitable and you know it, um, yeah unescapable well the the guys on the other side of the equation uh, like think the same thing it's the same thing with like the 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 russian eurasianists and the like mckinder oriented you know western um well same guys brzezinski like they each have the same ideas about like the importance of like the you know the like the what used to be the like the eastern bloc like they, they have the same geopolitical ideas just coming from the opposite 
um, opposite positions. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, they both accept this kind of these premises and therefore get into conflict with them. And, and the irony is that it's guys like Brzezinski who actually help bring about the clash of civilizations. Yeah. They, they define it, and then they decide that they're going to, you know, prop up the Mohajedin against the mm -hmm. Russians, for instance, and create the, uh, the, the inception, the seeds, for what is now known as Al-Qaeda. Mm -hmm. And then you've got the Al-Qaeda guys who believe the exact same thing. It's like, so it's a, just a recipe for disaster. And then uh, maybe just one more quote on this. This is actually the quote that I was thinking of at the very end of last week's show. Um, <clears throat> I'll, I'll just read it. Secular societies allow for individual agency and free will in a neutral public space, all of which encourages your jaw, which I think is um, um, like the deferment of the, like the, the actions that you have to do to prove your beliefs, something like that. So well, I guess I, I should preface this. This is, a, this is a paraphrase of the jihadist criticism of the West. So secularism, secular societies allow for individual agency and free will in a neutral public space. Implication, all of those things are bad um, because they all encourage irja, which reg uh, with regards to the observance or practices of Islamic commandments. Secularism is therefore not only inherently problematic, because it introduces foreign ideas to Muslim societies, as Maududi and Kutbah um, had already warned, but because it also restricts the capacity for social controls based on piety. So, the, again, this is that other side of the equation of the, the, the Islamist thinkers and theorists who totally reject secular Western society because um, in such a society what they want can't be done. Now, so to switch over and, and give some uh, give um, some kind of parallels from Israel Shahak's book, mm -hmm. we find the exact same thing in reference to um, like classical Judaism. Yes. So, I'll, I'll I'll just read two quotes from Shahak and you know see if you can spot the similarities. So, let's see. Um, well, I have one on the ready. Okay, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, classical Judaism has little interest in describing or explaining itself to the members of its own community, whether educated in Talmudic studies or not. It is significant that the writing of Jewish history, even in the driest analytic style, ceased completely from the time of Josephus Flavius, end of the first century, until the Renaissance, when it was revived for a short time in Italy and in other countries where the Jews were under strong Italian influence. Characteristically, the rabbis feared Jew Jewish even more than general history. And the first modern book on history published in Hebrew in the 16th century was entitled History of the Kings of France and of the Ottoman Kings. It was followed by some histories dealing only with the persecutions that Jews had been subjected to. The first book on Jewish history proper dealing with ancient times was promptly banned and suppressed by the highly rabbinical authorities and did not reappear before the 19th century. The rabbinical authorities of Eastern Europe furthermore decreed that all non-Talmudic studies are to be forbidden, even when nothing specific could be found in them which merits anathema, because they encroach on the time that should be employed either in studying the Talmud or in making money. 
which should be used to subsidize Talmudic scholars. Only one loophole was left, namely the time that even a pious Jew must perforce spend in the privy. In that unclean place, sacred studies are forbidden, and it was therefore permitted to read history there, provided it was written in Hebrew and was completely secular, which in effect meant that it must be exclusively devoted to non-Jewish subjects. In parenthesis, Shachak writes, one can imagine that those few Jews of that time who, no doubt tempted by Satan, developed an interest in the history of the French kings, were constantly complaining to their neighbors about the constipation they were suffering from. As a consequence, 200 years ago, the vast majority of Jews were totally in the dark, not only about the existence of America, but also about Jewish history and Jewry's contemporary state, and they were quite content to remain so. So what Shachak is saying basically is that the whole of classical Judaism was so insular, it was so uh, um, ignorant uh, by design of you know, the, the outside world and ideas that, that you, know, you had to kind of shunt yourself away to, to look at uh, lest you be you know, chastised or, or, uh, or criticized for, for looking into material that wasn't exclusively Talmudic. There's this kind of uh, concentration of, of, um, of thought that didn't permit for any other uh, ideas uh, in the secular world. Um, so that's one example that came to mind when you were discussing that. Well, I've got point. a couple others. Okay. So this is from a, <clears throat> a letter written from, um, let's see, this was from the, written shortly before 1832 by the famous rabbi Moshe Sofer in Pressburg, now Bratislava, in what was then the autonomous Hungarian kingdom in the Austrian Empire, and addressed to Vienna in Austria proper, where the Jews had already been granted some considerable individual rights. He, that is um, Moshe, Rabbi Moshe, he laments the fact that since the Jewish con congregation in Vienna lost its powers to punish offenders, that is Jewish offenders under their control, under the rabbi's control, the Jews there have become lax in matters of religious observance, and adds, here in Pressburg, when I am told that a Jewish shopkeeper dared to open his shop during the lesser holidays, I immediately send a policeman to imprison him. So this, is, this was in the context of um, Shahak, one of Shahak's main points about um, classical Jewish history, that in, um, in Jewish communities, for the most part, they were like, to be a member of the Jewish community meant you were um, like practicing the, the religion as uh, as laid out by the rabbis. And so it wasn't like today where you have secular Jews. It was like you were part of the community. And the rabbis ruled the, the Jewish communities like with an iron fist. Um, Shahak describes it as the most, the most totalitarian system of like human society on record. And he's arguably correct. It lasted for more than a thousand years um, of just not like nonstop total control of the Jewish population by the rabbis. Not by the you know the the powers that be um, in in like whatever countries not 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 by the nobility not by you know the rulers of the countries in which they all lived it was the rabbis that ex ex that exercised total control over the Jewish population and that was um, a power given to them by the rulers and so um, 
Well, so yeah, it was like in that context, the um, while in the periods between, um, let's say, Gentile uh, persecution of the Jewish communities, it was the rabbis who were um, oppressing the the Jewish population, like the just you know everyone who wasn't a rabbi in their communities, mm -hmm. and then of course then that was punctuated by um, uh, like a a persecution by the essentially the peasants of whatever country they were living in, whatever you, whatever um, you know region they were living in. That's a kind of a different topic. Maybe just just to get into it briefly, like one of the points Shahak makes is that there there was a like there are two kinds of anti-Semitism. There's modern anti-Semitism that's a product of again the late 1800s, where all those crazy ideologies come from. This is kind of like the scientific racism of uh, like specifically in relation to Jews, the idea that Jews are a specific race with particular characteristics that they all share. And um, this was a view shared by anti-Semites and by like the, the, the more traditional Talmudic like uh, Jews. They, they both believed the same thing. They both believed that Jews were a special race with particular qualities. Of course, for the, the Jews that believed that, they were, they were good qualities, and for the non-Jews who believed it, they were bad qualities. But oftentimes, Shahak observes you to find an alliance between these two types of, uh, or these two kind of, again, two opposite sides of the same wrong ideology that believe the same thing, but who are in conflict in some ways. Um, but uh, one other quote that he has, this is actually a, a long sentence. I don't, I don't know if it'll be good to, to read it or try to summarize it. Um, maybe I'll do both. <laughs> so, uh, just as in the case of Germany, it was easy to ally the cause of reaction with patriotism, because in actual fact, individual rights and equality before the law, equality before the law, were brought into Germany by the armies of the French Revolution and of Napoleon, um, and one could brand liberty as un-German. Okay, so keep that thought in mind. So he's basically saying that in in Germany, it was easy to label um, ideas associated with the French Revolution as un-German because of patriotism. So you could reject the ideas uh, and ideals of the French Revolution in Germany by claiming you know, German patriotism. Oh, well, those are foreign ideas. Um, they don't apply to, to us, even if, they're, even if they happen to be you know, universal ideals that potentially anyone in the world could share. Um, so he says, just, um, just as that can happen, exactly so it turned out to be, uh, to be very easy among the Jews, particularly in Israel, to mount a very effective attack against all the notions and ideals of humanism and the rule of law, not to say democracy, as something un-Jewish or anti-Jewish, as indeed they are in a historical sense, and as principles which may be used in the Jewish interest, but which have no validity against Jewish interest. For example, when Arabs evoke, uh, invoke these same principles. This has also led, again, just as in Germany and other nations of Middle Europa, to a deceitful, sentimental, and ultra-romantic Jewish historiography, from which all inconvenient facts have been expunged. Basically, just to show that there, there is the same reaction in, um, in Talmudic Judaism, in that community, to um, like Western secular values that we see in like the Salafi jihadist theorists and their writings and, and their beliefs. This, uh, this kind of lumping of everything outside into this evil other thing. It's like no matter what, if, if it's not part of our ideology, then it is evil. Mm -hmm. And so, you, so like, it gets to the point in Talmudic Judaism where things like the rule of law and individual rights um, are seen as essentially and inherently evil things, as un-Jewish things. And elsewhere in the book, he points out that this kind of belief 
um, in combination with a lot of the specific beliefs and uh, and like rulings that come down through um, Talmudic the, the Talmudic history, um, that these things basically um, contribute and are the reason why, for instance, in Israel, when uh, when confronted even with like quotes from the Bible um, criticizing like Israeli actions like for like stealing or murdering, um, the those criticisms have no effect. And the point he makes is that. Well, because those aren't Jewish ideals. Like, according to the Talmud, they have a very particular interpretation of that, and it's not a humanistic one. It's not one based on individual rights or human rights or, like, you know, the divine spark in every in anyone and everyone. It, like, for Talmudic Judaism, they have a very specific interpretation of things. Like, to be considered, uh, like, a human, essentially, you have to be Jewish. And so, all these criticisms about, like, murdering a, a, an Arab or stealing stealing land from an Arab, well, you know, it, it just doesn't apply. Because there's nothing inherently wrong with that. Um, it's like you know, it's like stealing a little bit of land from an animal, there, or it's like you know, killing a killing a dog, a rabid dog, or a snake. That's one of the that's one of the terms that they that they used even today in Israel, and it comes from the Talmud. This idea of like, um, what's the I can't remember the exact phrasing, but like even the best of snakes kill him, or something like that. And so that's why you have what's her name? Um, the, wasn't she education minister? Um, the I can't remember in Israel, but she, I think she just quit politics just recently. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, I know who you're talking. About. Yeah, she's got the like the famous quote. It's like, well, you know, the 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 Arabs will the Palestinians will just give birth to more snakes, and uh, and when what do you do to a snake? Well, you you don't wait to see if it's a good or a bad snake. You just kill it. I mean, so that that was kind of like the subtext of her statement. And all kinds of Israeli politicians and rabbis make statements like that all the time. You just never hear about them in the Western press. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well. So uh, Shahak makes a makes this point pretty clear in discussing a book by Leo Rothstein called "The Joys of Yiddish," um, and what he says is this lighthearted work, first published in the USA in 1968, was reprinted in many editions, including several times as a Penguin paperback. Is a kind of glossary of Yiddish words often used by Jews or even non-Jews in English-speaking countries. For each entry, in addition to a detailed definition and more or less amusing anecdotes illustrating its use, there is also an etymology stating, quite accurately on the whole, the language from which the word came into Yiddish and its meaning in that language. The entry, Shegetz, whose main meaning is a Gentile boy or young man, is an exception. There, the etymology cryptically states Hebrew origin, without giving the form or meaning of the original Hebrew word. However, under the entry Shiksa, the feminine form of Shegetz, the author does give the original Hebrew word, Sheketz, or in his transliteration, Shekez, and defines its Hebrew meaning as blemish. This is a barefaced lie, as every speaker of Hebrew knows. The Megiddo Modern Hebrew English Dictionary, published in Israel, correctly defines Shaketz as follows. Unclean animal, loathsome, creature, abomination, colloquial pronounced Shaketz, wretch, unruly youngster, Gentile youngster. You know, so, so this, uh, this deeply uh, prejudiced, racist, hateful... Um, uh, language is is deeply embedded 
in the Talmudic thinking and writing that is uh, so promulgated in Israel right now. Uh, last week, I mentioned a few articles uh, that, um, that that we've been reading on Sot that illustrate the very uh, sentiment that uh, that these types of words um, characterize. And, uh, you know, you, like that minister you mentioned, uh, you have all of these rabbis in positions of power in the West Bank and various other places who who use this language, who use this ideology to further pathologize, uh, you know, soldiers, uh, their community. It, it, it's like they're browbeat with uh, this pathological material until they're made to believe it and act on it. And um, it's really remarkable that you have people in uh, these these vaunted positions of power in various places, both religious and political, uh, who you can hear say these types of things. If you know, if anyone in the in the West uh, had said these things, even in a even in a time where we're not living in this kind of politically correct culture, uh, they would be called to the mat. They would be criticized and nailed to the cross, so to say. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for Israel, it's become so normalized uh, that, um, and of course, you don't really hear about it here in the West. You, you know, it's it's rare that the Washington Post or the New York Times comes out and and actually has any coverage of of what these people are actually saying and what they and what they think and believe so fervently. Um, I don't know if it's you know if it's editorial policy or it's an embarrassment or or if they just you know there's some selection and substitution about about what they're reporting on, but it it doesn't figure into letting the Western world know how these people think and and what informs their you know on one hand they'll tell the world that there is you know they're they're the most uh, democratic country in the Middle East. And that they're the most humanitarian, and and uh, and that they're they the IDF has the highest morals, uh, when it couldn't be further from the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that yeah, that is interesting because Shahak talks about the uh, the national identification card that was issued all the way up to I think about two thousand and five, um, and that it you know it categorizes each person based on you know race and all this ethnicity, but uh, under ethnicity. Uh, there wasn't a <clears throat> a category for Israeli. You didn't. Nothing on the identification card said you were Israeli. It was you know whether you were Jewish or Palestinian or this or that, and that this was basically how you know you were viewed from the lens of the you know the Jewish state. The that either you were a Jew and you had all the rights within this Jewish state, or you weren't, and then you were treated differently. You could get different jobs. You couldn't travel, you know, to these places, and and uh, this uh, this didn't this. I think well, you know, just reading on the latest uh, information about it that we get in the kind of bleached press, you know, the Wikipedia type press of what goes on in Israel. It sounds like this was changed, um, you know, due to a lot of you know in the in the mid two thousand. Uh, like 2005, 2006, to um, reflect something a little bit more uh, easy on the eyes for the foreigners. But it still seems to me that that's still basically how you are categorized within Israel on an official level. Mm-hmm. And, you know, 
and then on the unofficial level, there's obviously ethnic cleansing. Well, I mean, still, that's that's on the official level too. I guess just mm -hmm. not something we're privy to. He gives. He also gives the example of the like the way the the language used in how like the laws are framed, and how, for instance, like there there isn't a a distinction in most Israeli law. I think this is how he says it. Like between uh, Jew and non-Jew. Um, because to do so would be kind of like just too obvious. This is in relation to like you know who has what rights. Because like you said, Ilan, like Israel prevents presents itself as the only democracy in the Middle East um, when it is not a democracy. Um, because they're like different. If you're depending on if you're Jewish or not, you have different rights. Jews have more rights in Israel than non-Jews, even if they're Israeli citizens. And the way they get around this is that by instead of calling like all their citizens jews or non-jews they say okay that like all you know maybe all, all citizens have rights or whatever but then when it comes to this specifics it says like for the for when they want to talk about jews it's like those with the right of uh like return right of return essentially that, that uh you know because jews anywhere in the world can get automatic israeli citizenship just on virtue by virtue of being jewish and then for for when they're talking about um, rights that people don't have um, in in the state. It's those without the the right of return. So they don't say non-Jews. They say those without the right of return. Well, who doesn't have the right of return? Well, it's all of the non-Jewish citizens. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so so that's their that's their way of like like legalistically like fudging the the facts that that, that non-Jews don't have as many rights in Israel as Jews do. And uh, and Shahak argues that that is uh, like a holdover and a continuation of the Talmudic me mentality. So it's not like it's not like the secular Jews um, who you know who have adopted humanism and, and um, you know Western values have um, like basically started the state of Israel. It's like no that the, those same uh, prejudices um, are present even within the so-called uh, like secular state of Israel, and they they get. Um, um, manifested in both laws and just general practice in in Israel, it's kind of like uh, so. It, it is a, a kind of um, the the ideology is kind of Trojan horsed into the state through this like pretense of uh, being a secular democracy. But the all of the original um, you know prejudices and and um, you know oppressive practices are still there. One thing I find really fascinating that Shahak discusses is this branch of Judaism that this fork uh, that exists. He doesn't talk about this specifically. Uh, he talks about classical Judaism, though. But I just um, reading what he talks about the uh, the this how these rabbis forged Judaism around these racist, xenophobic, schizoidal ideas. You know that started um, you know with the creation of the Talmud. I think I can't remember if it was like. 300 or 500 AD is when it started well, the, getting uh, like forged together put well, together it, it's tough because like the the origins of the Talmud are kind of lost in legend but mm -hmm. but uh, Shahak and a lot of theorists say like probably the first work starting to be done on it was like in the 200s mm -hmm. and then it kind of it uh, it was developed over time and then Shahak argues that there's kind of like a, a Jewish dark age where we don't know where anything was really going on and then it was really in 800 when things really started going and being put into practice but yeah so it was like probably from the 200s on. It's just it's fascinating to me to to picture this uh, these 
these evil, you know, evil rabbis uh, on one hand, and then you have the Pauline type Christian uh, Judaism on the other hand, and how they just forked, you know, right around the, you know, in the beginning of the Christian era, and then just kept on going their separate directions with this these rabbis becoming uh and their you know and everyone who was under their thrall becoming uh something like a mercenary middle class for despotic rulers to you know both suppress the uh the peasants and to do their bidding for them mm -hmm. knowing that they're the rabbis are beholden to these you know these despots because without them then there's no way that they can enforce their schizoidal view of human nature on other jews mm -hmm. and that lasted for you know a thousand years it's just kept going and going and getting more and more insane you know through endless permutations of these strict legal codes about when you can work what you can work with you know which hand you can work with on you know the sabbath and then whether you know if you're typing one word if that you get the same punishment for writing on the sabbath as if you had typed two or you know written two words or which hand it, you know you were writing with um just all these endless permutations until the uh until the 18th century when that whole system kind of collapsed but then at the same time you st you still had those that that schizoidal um those all those schizoidal ideologies giving birth you know and then spreading mm -hmm. i mean you know it's just it's mind-boggling to me well that reminded me of something that i've been thinking about for the past week that you know while i was reading this book <clears throat> in previous shows we talked about like the schizoidal declaration right this is the belief that Lobachevsky ascribes to schizoidal ideologues that human nature is so bad that uh, that people need you know a strong authority to keep them in line essentially, and so at at first I was always thinking about that in terms of just kind of like a cognitive error, like that um, that uh, schizoids like this will they they see human nature as just being inherently evil, and therefore like in their minds the only way to to keep people in check is to well to to lord it over them to keep them in check but actually the, the it's it, it, i think it's that but it's also something else they're actually right in the sense that according to their view of human nature like the they've got this view of what human nature should be like and and really the only way to keep to make people be like that is through like a totalitarian system of government like the like the one the rabbis um you know exercised on the the jewish people that is like that's the only way to to keep that system alive and they managed to do it for like a thousand years and then like that quote that i read like in the 1800s and and uh and and further on when um when jews were given like equal rights in all these countries the the system started falling apart mm -hmm. and then all the rabbis started complaining about it because because it just kind of proved the it proved their point that the only way to keep people in check, to, to make sure people are good by their standard of what it means to be good and righteous, is through this system of total control. Well, that's interesting because that would have been around the same time that uh, that the Zionist movement uh, started taking shape, mm -hmm. as early as the, the late 1800s. So, you know, it, it, it seems as though, in some, on some level, um, that... You know, out of this kind of sense of losing control, uh, because things were uh, loosening up, because Jews were getting more rights in Europe and, and other places, and because there was, I think, a, a kind of a movement that Shachak mentions called the Halakha. Um, I, I forget the name of it, but it was a it was a kind of 
liberalization or enlightenment uh, among Jewish people, that they that the kind of authoritarian um, uh, force uh, behind Talmudic Judaism had to reconfigure itself and 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 recompose itself in a particular place where it would have a greater amount of control over uh, a greater number of Jews. Um, so that was that was something that I was wondering about uh, as well. That 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 there that there needed some that that these Talmudic types needed uh, Israel uh, in order to continue to um, act out their authoritarian tendencies in mm-hmm. a sense, um, and that strangely enough, the the Holocaust um, was a uh, a convenient part of that narrative um, because the, the the rush to you know bring people into Israel didn't just happen after the Holocaust even though that that's that's largely when a, a great number of Jewish survivors of the Holocaust went to Israel it happened decades before this was a, an ongoing movement mm-hmm. well um, the I just wanted to make one comment about the the, the kind of um, co-occurrence in time that you mentioned about like the the uh, having to do with world war ii and and zion the the birth of the zionist movement and like the creation of israel to kind of continue this talmudic tradition because it wasn't working as well as it had you know in europe um one of the things that uh shahak writes about is um this is kind of like the the often times like alliance between the the anti-semites and the the kind of um the Jewish supremacists, essentially. And so he gives an example um, from World War II era. This was, um, I'll just read this page. Perhaps the most shocking example of this type is the delight with which some Zionist leaders in Germany welcomed Hitler's rise to power because they shared his belief in the primacy of race and his hostility to the assimilation of Jews among Aryans. They congratulated Hitler on his triumph over the common enemy, the forces of liberalism. Dr. Joachim Prinz, a Zionist rabbi who subsequently emigrated to the USA, where he rose to be vice chairman of the World Jewish Congress and a leading light of the World Zionist Organization, as well as a great friend of Golda Meir, published in 1934 a special book, Wir Juden, Juden? Uh, We Jews, to celebrate Hitler's so-called German Revolution and the defeat of liberalism. Quote, The meaning of the German Revolution for the German nation will eventually be clear to those who have created it and formed its image. Its meaning for us must be set forth here. The fortunes of liberalism are lost. The only form of political life which has helped Jewish assimilation is sunk. The victory of Nazism rules out assimilation and mixed marriages as an option for Jews. We are not unhappy about this, said Dr. Prinz. In the, in the fact that Jews are being forced to identify themselves as Jews, he sees the fulfillment of our desires. And further, quote, We want assimilation to be replaced by a new law, a declaration of belonging to the Jewish nation and Jewish race. A state built upon the principle of the purity of nation and race can only be honored and respected by a Jew who declares his belonging to his own kind. Having so declared himself, he will never be capable of faulty loyalty towards a state. The state cannot want other Jews um, but such as declare themselves as belonging to their nation. It will not want Jewish flatterers and crawlers. 
It, it must demand of us faith and loyalty to our own interest. For only he who honors his own breed and his own blood can have an attitude of honor towards the national will of the nations. End quote. Uh, Shahat continues then. <clears throat> the whole book is full of similar crude flatteries of Nazi ideology, glee at the defeat of liberalism and particularly of the ideas of the French Revolution, and great expectations that, in the congenial atmosphere of the myth of the Aryan race, Zionism and the myth of the Jewish race will also thrive. Of course, Dr. Prinz, like so many other early sympathizers of, and allies of Nazism, did not realize where that movement, and modern anti-Semitism generally, was leading. Equally, many people at present do not realize where Zionism, the movement in which Dr. Prinz was an honored figure, is, is tending, to a combination of all the old hates of classical Judaism towards Gentiles, and to the indiscriminate and ahistorical use of all the persecutions of Jews throughout history in order to justify the Zionist persecution of the Palestinians. <clears throat> so th there too you see the, this kind of like um, schizoid lack of uh, foresight, because um, they've got all of their principles, all of their axioms, you know, all of the, the, the premises that, lead, that, that form the logic of their ideology, and they can't see what the logical progression of that is. Right. Like, um, and, and of course, you know, not many people could, I guess, you know, back then, um, the, you know, the logic of scientific racism. Um, but, you know, at least with the, the benefit of hindsight and some psychological knowledge, you know, well, I'm sure there were people at the time who could see it, um, even if they're in the minority. But any, like, just, it's like we talked about, whenever you have an ideology like that, well, what do you expect to happen? When you when you when you identify, it's just such a it's such a stupid idea to think that any one random race has some special characteristics that no one else has, and we are essentially different from all other races. It's like that's just a completely ludicrous idea. Like most most people have more in common with people from other races than they do with people within their own races, except maybe their skin color. It's like, and that's like the the, the least. Like the least important thing that you could do, it's like an an accident of genetics. Essentially, it's like the things that matter about humans are their character, who they are on the inside, their individuality, and all of that is denied whenever you have an ideology like this, like classical Judaism, like Nazism, like Marxism. It's like I mean, they're all equally stupid. And and that's exactly the the tragic, idiotic uh, state that that uh, most of the Israeli people are, are faced with right now, this profound lack of insight about their own hypocritical attitude towards Palestinians, uh, victimizing them, uh, demonizing them, characterizing them as less than human, when only 70 years ago they were yeah. they were in the other uh, they were in the other shoe. And um, it, it you know, the, the lesson of the Holocaust wasn't uh, wasn't never again. Uh, to the Jews, the lesson of the Holocaust is never again to anybody, um, and that's really uh, one of Shahak's other major points here: is, is that um, that there is no, you know, like you were saying, Harrison, there's no kind of universal humanism in, involved in the thinking of the Israelis and, and the Talmudic Jews, um, and I think I think part of that, you know. Uh, I think he even terms um, this phenomenon as Ju Judeo-Nazi. And it was mm -hmm. interesting because I, I had read Judeo-Nazi uh, written in other articles and places. And I think um, 
I think he was the one who coined the phrase, if, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so the parallels here are, uh, are many, and, and I think that they're incredibly uncomfortable for the Jewish person who has unquestionably or unquestioningly uh, supported Israel and Zionism um, to confront within themselves. It's, uh, it, it's, um, uh, it, it's been a real head job, a real mind screw for, for liberal Jews in the West, and uh, it doesn't help any that you have idiots like Emmanuel Macron, who in response to his own political uh, uh, struggles right now is suddenly coming out and, and against anti-Semitism as though that has anything to do with anything, uh, and conflating criticism of, of Israel with anti-Semitism. Um, he's just further uh, perpetuating this idea of, of victimization and um, it, all in an effort to deflect from, from the true victimization that a lot of his citizens are experiencing under his stupid neoliberal policies. Uh, so it's incredible how, it, how, it's, how it's become this, uh, this uh, convenient um, fallback and, uh, you know, bring out the anti-Semitism charge. It's such an old canard, it, it, and it's falling apart daily. Uh, people are beginning to see it for what it is, and uh, it can't happen too soon. Well, I just, uh, you know, you're talking about one of the lessons of Nazi Germany being, you know, never again to anybody. And I think another important lesson from that, it probably, I think maybe the most important lesson from that period of history is the re just the reality of, of evil, of what pure evil is capable of, just just on you know abysmal just satanic levels of evil and you know for these early zionists to have so much in common with the party you know that brought that evil onto earth and you know spread death and destruction across europe and russia and you know for them to have so many parallels and to be so sympathetic with it you know it doesn't matter that in you know that these zionists were then like we're oh you know we weren't we weren't aware of what would come from it you know because it's us now looking back and seeing these parallels and seeing and just being aware of what's really at the root of this re this classical judaism that has been you know that is really it really seems to have been reborn you know with the state of israel this you know closed system um this persecution based system that the rabbis see themselves as, you know, the the lords of all mankind, the highest of all mankind, and every, you know, so many others are just, you know, slime, worthless. You know, these ideas engender the the spawning, the creation of of absolute evil, and you know that's one reason why so many people who can look past, you know, for whatever reason, can look past our common quote-unquote judeo-christian values and see what's actually happening are so can be so disgusted with it because that is what's happening and you know even like you said you know the uh the, you know the, uh, believing all these lies elon has just warped the minds of of mm -hmm. israeli jews the ones who are once again back in that you know that kind of uh uh, uh, that rabbi-based control system, the Jew, the you know, where the Jew is the most important thing. You know, the Talmud is you know an important part of society. You know, just like these uh, jihadists, the Salafi jihadists who 
who think that anything outside of Allah is, um, you know, if you if you befriend someone who's uh, not a Muslim, then you have become a an apostate and you should be excommunicated. Or if you believe in communism or capitalism, or if you uh, support a, a leader who isn't uh, Muslim, then you are, you know, guilty of of the uh, the greatest sin. You know these, uh, you know this kind of thinking has uh, corrupted that country for decades, and that's what you know Shahak wanted to bring out. And I, I'd say you, you know, if you haven't read this book, I think you're really missing out on why there is so much strife in Israel and what the real core of the problem is. And it's you know it's not just the West came in and propped it up, you know, or you know, and uses it uh, or. The, uh, to you know, destroy the Middle East or whatever, but this stretches back you know thousands of or a thousand years, you know twelve hundred years. Um, it, I just wanted to read one interesting quote that Shahak uh, has in his book about just the kinds of topics and subjects that interest these uh, some of the readers in the um, that have succumbed to this racist and schizoidal way of viewing uh, the world. He writes, at the time of writing, early August 1993, some topics of major interest to readers of the Hebrew press are whether soldiers killed in action who are sons of non-Jewish mothers will be buried in a segregated area in Israeli military cemeteries, whether Jewish religious burial associations who have a monopoly over the burial of all Jews except kibbutz members will be allowed to continue their custom of circumcising the corpses of non-circumcised Jews before burying them and without asking the family's permission, and whether the import of non-kosher meat to Israel, banned unofficially since the establishment of the state, will be allowed or banned by law, and there are many, many more issues of this kind, he writes. Um, you know, I don't read Hebrew, so I don't know what the, I mean, it'd be nice to know what the, you know, the real grit, the real stuff that interests them, uh, you know, some of the Israelis are, but, you know, I don't, I just don't think you can really understand on like a really psychological deep level, what kind of a worldview is, is going on there and what, you know, what is happening to Israel without reading this book. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to read a couple things in relation to what you guys have just said in the last few minutes. First, this is a quote that Shahak gives from the Chinese sage Mencius from uh, 4th century BC. Mencius wrote, This is why I say that all men have a sense of commiseration. Here is a man who suddenly notices a child about to fall into a well. Invariably, he will feel a sense of alarm and compassion. And this is not for the purpose of gaining the favor of the child's parents or of seeking the approbation of his neighbors and friends or for fear of blame should he fail to rescue it. Thus we see that no man is without a sense of compassion or a sense of shame or a sense of courtesy or a sense of right and wrong. This sense of compassion is the beginning of humanity. The sense of shame is the beginning of righteousness. The sense and the, and the sense of courtesy is the beginning of decorum. The sense of right and wrong is the beginning of wisdom. Every man has within himself these four beginnings, just as he has four limbs. Since everyone has these four beginnings within him, the man who considers himself incapable of exercising them is destroying himself. Shahak then writes, We have seen above, and will show in greater detail in the, in the next chapter, how far removed from this are the precepts with which the Jewish religion in its classical and Talmudic form is poisoning minds and hearts. So he gets into some of the examples, because that is... 
that is an anti-Semitic statement. That that whole Mencius thing is anti-Semitic and anti-Jewish in nature, because not you know because and it's funny that Mencius used the example of uh, you know a um, a child about to fall in a, mm -hmm. into a well because that's what a lot of the rabbis thought about. They had these like thought experiments. Okay, well if a uh, you know if a man if a man in the forest you know no if a uh, you know, if if someone has fallen to into a well or is about to follow in fall into a well, am I as a Jew obligated to save him? Well, if he's a Jew, yes. If he's not, the um, no, you don't have to save him. In fact, that uh, if he's already fallen to the well, then you shouldn't save him. Um, but if you can save him and there are people around and and you 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 might damage the reputation of Jews or yourself in the process, then you should save him. But um, and and on and on and on and on and on on the reasons why or why you should not save a baby. In fact, um, there's, uh, well, there's one that I'll get to um, if, I, if I can find it in the quotes later on. Just wait, it's, it's about, well, go ahead, Alain. Well, it, it, this whole, you know, that whole bit reminded me greatly of um, something a lot of Jewish people say when, when defending Israel. And that is, you know, whenever there's a disaster, a humanitarian disaster, uh, um, accident of some kind, <clears throat> they send a, a team of Jewish doctors and, and a, an emergency rescue staff to come to the aid internationally. You don't hear about it so much these days, but you know it, it's been known to happen. An earthquake happens in South America. They send a team of 20. Uh, you know, a, a, some kind of um, building collapses or something. And, and what they do, I mean, it, it's, it's so cynical because... You know, when, when you look at those things in context, um, it, the, the line of force here isn't that they're, that they're doing it simply because it's the right thing to do as, as part of a, a, an international, being an international good neighbor uh, or, or doing a good deed, a mitzvah. It's, it's so that they can say that they did it. And they do say that they did it. It's not done with humility or, um, you know, when you, when you pray... Um, you don't make a, you know, I just heard Jordan Peterson say this the other day, you, you don't go out and, and make a show of praying or you don't, you're not, immod you're not immodest about doing a, a good deed. You do it, uh, you do it humbly, you do it quietly. Um, you do it simply because it's in you to do, uh, it's the right thing to it's do. It's the right thing to do. <laughs> um, so I just wanted to mention that because it reminded me of, 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 that kind of Hasbro talking point that mm -hmm. you that you hear so sometimes in the news about these that you know Israel sending yes. this team of wonderful people to help in the disaster. Well, one of the things uh, Shahak does <clears throat> mention that uh, because there are there are <clears throat> there are all these Talmudic rules about, for instance, Jewish doctors and whether or not they should treat Gentiles and um, when they should treat them, if they should treat them on the Sabbath or not, and all of the all of the excuses that doctors should give if called to. Um, to treat a Gentile like, you know, maybe in childbirth on, on the Sabbath. And basically how, how here, and, and it's explicit, like the, the, it's not that, that you don't, you actually can't do it for, you know, legitimate reasons. It's like, here's the excuse to give. Tell them that you're, that you're busy working on another patient who needs you and you can't, you can't get there in time. Um, because if you were to say that, or if you were to refuse the, your service, then that would give the, the the Jews in your in your area a bad reputation. Mm -hmm. um, it's in the Jewish interest for you to lie, um, beca because uh, and at no point is there any discussion of whether it's just uh, a good idea or not to help someone or to give them medical treatment. Right. So in this context, this is the quote I was I was mentioning before um, before you came in there. He said, uh, 
he, he quotes in relation to something else, this Rabbi Akiva Iger in his commentary on Shulhan Aruch. Um, so he says this rabbi also adds that if a baby is found abandoned in a town inhabited mainly by Gentiles, a rabbi should be consulted as to whether the baby should be saved. Um, because it might not be uh, a Jewish baby, and if, it, if the chances are that it's a Gentile baby, maybe it shouldn't be saved. Um, and there, there are, again, there are all of these uh, rules. For instance, um, if, uh, if there's a fire in a building, should, the, should you as a Jew um, do something to save the people within it? Well, if, if it's known to be a Jewish building and, and it most likely has Jewish inhabitants, then yes. If it's a mixed building and maybe there are nine Jews and one Gentile and you know that one person is out, has, has left the building and is safe, then chances are there's a, there's a good chance that the, the, the rest in there like, are Jews, so yes, do it. But if it's a mostly Gentile building, and and one person is left, and there's only one Jew that you know inhabits that building, then um, then you should just do nothing because the the odds are just you know are too too great or you know. And, like, and and needless to say that you know that there have been whole tomes of of literature written to make these distinctions mm -hmm. is so crazy, it's so insane. Uh, you know, we just have to say it here. You know, just just the fact that they that they were thinking on these things, that it would be a a, a question in their minds for even a moment, uh, is like it's yeah. it's insane. It's it's really it's sick, and uh, and 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 to think that you have a whole body of of religious people and and even you know the more uh, less the less religious types in Israel who think this way or, or that their thinking has been informed by some of these things even on a mild level um that's what we're dealing with here mm -hmm. um because it, it this type of thinking doesn't it doesn't just dissipate into the ether it's there it's part of the 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 social fabric it's part of the education it's part of it's part of the unstated uh thinking and 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 feeling of a of a whole country of people that uh, right now are are trying to um, grab a bunch of land at, at the at the expense of the lives of millions in the Middle East and uh, and they're very smart about it I mean in that statement that you read Harrison it you know it implies an awareness of how their thinking would be perceived on the part of the other also mm -hmm. you know or their behavior it's like well you know if, if you think it's going to bring uh, negative repercussions on our people, then don't do it. Um, but that, it, it, you know, the behavior we're seeing now has even surpassed that. It, it's like it doesn't matter. There's this mm -hmm. kind of uh, sweeping, you know, go to hell uh, attitude on the part of uh, the Israeli government about most of what they do. Mm -hmm. Let me read a few, a few other quotes on this topic. <clears throat> According to the Halakha, the duty, to save the, uh, the duty to save the life of a fellow Jew is paramount. It supersedes all other religious obligations and interdictions, excepting only the prohibitions against the three most heinous sins of adultery, including incest, murder, and idolatry. And of course, you know, as we talked about last week, there are exceptions to all those rules too, because you know, murder isn't murder if it's not a Jew um, who's been murdered. And uh, you know, adultery isn't adultery if if the, the, the male Jew is sleeping with uh, an animal, i.e. a Gentile, mm. you know, etc. That's just bestiality. 
uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But um, so first, before I continue, that um, you can see the the parallel between that and the um, the Salafi jihadism about this this idea of like so that's the most important thing and it supersedes all other things even when you even if that leads you into absurdities and and totally immoral behavior um, that's just the way the logic works out so he quotes uh, Maimonides um, I'll, I'll, I won't read the full quote but in particular in particular a Jewish doctor must not treat a Jewish a Gentile patient. Maimonides, himself an illustrious physician and one of the most famous you know, Jewish, Jewish thinkers ever, is quite explicit on this. In another passage, he repeats the distinction between thy fellow, i.e. another Jew, and a Gentile, and concludes, and from this learn ye that it is forbidden to heal a Gentile, even for payment. However, the refusal of a Jew, particularly a Jewish doctor, to save the life of a Gentile may, if it becomes known, antagonize powerful Gentiles and so put Jews in danger. Where such danger exists, the obligation to avert it supersedes the ban on helping the Gentile. Thus Maimonides continues, But if you fear him or his hostility, cure him for a payment, though you are fidden, forbidden to do it uh, without payment. And uh, let's just keep going here. Um, so after a discussion of these sorts of laws and you know rules on behavior, uh, Shahak comments, in the whole discussion, the main issue is the excuses that should be made, not the actual healing or the welfare of the patient. And throughout, it is taken for granted that it is all right to deceive Gentiles rather than treat them, so long as hostility can be averted. And then another one. Um, uh, so, gifts. Now, this relates, I, I thought of this one when I was thinking in terms of what I quoted last week about, um, you know, uh, Salafi jihadists um, being unable to friend um, non-believers, because when you when you become a friend with a non-believer, you become a non-believer yourself. So, this is in the section on money and property, uh, specifically in relation to gifts. The Talmud bluntly forbids giving a gift to a Gentile. However, classical rabbinical authorities bent this rule because it is customary among businessmen to, to give gifts to business contacts. It was therefore laid down that a Jew may give a gift to a Gentile acquaintance, since, since this is regarded not as a true gift, but as a sort of investment from which some return is in, expected. Gifts to unfamiliar Gentiles remain forbidden. A broadly similar rule applies to almsgiving. Giving alms to a Jewish beggar is an important religious duty. Alms to Gentile beggars are merely permitted for the sake of peace. However, there are numerous rabbinical warnings against allowing the Gentile poor to, be, to become accustomed to receiving alms from Jews, so that it should be possible to withhold such alms without arousing undue hostility. And uh, another one. So, um, Rabbinical authorities differ among themselves as to the precise details of the circumstances under which a Jew may rob a Gentile, but the whole debate is concerned only with the relative power of Jews and Gentiles, rather than with universal considerations of justice and humanity. This may explain why so very few rabbis have protested against the robbery of Palestinian property in Israel. It was backed by overwhelming Jewish power. So You've almost got some like uh, postmodern, you know, uh, neo-Marxist kind of stuff going on here. It's it's all about power relations. Like when you are when you are in power, you're allowed to do things that you aren't allowed to do when you're not in power. And it's not because there's anything inherently right or wrong about the behavior. It's just that you can get away with it if you're in a position of power. So this is the case with like with robbing. It's like you you can't 
there's there's nothing inherently wrong about uh, robbing a gentile. It's just that you can't do it if you're in a weak position because it might come back to you. But if you're a strong in a strong position, you know, go ahead, no problem. Um, just again, the, the like poverty of of values in this worldview is just kind of like uh, staggering. Yeah, the moral relativism, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. So uh, one more on this topic. Um, to uh, okay, yeah. So this is from um, who is this here? This is from the, the Book of Education. This was written by an anonymous rabbi in the 14th century Spain. Um, and it's popular in Israel today. Um, it's been re reprinted many times um, in cheap editions um, and heavily subsidized by the Israeli government. So this is in the section on uh, a religious obligation to love Jews. And it explains, To love every Jew strongly means that we should care for a Jew and his money just as one cares for oneself and one's own money. For it is written, Thou shalt love thy fellow as thyself. And our sages of blessed memory said, What is hateful to you, do not do to your friend. And many other religious obligations follow from this, because one, uh, one who loves one's friend as oneself will not steal his money, or commit adultery with his wife, or defraud him of his money, or deceive him verbally, or steal his land, or harm him in any way. And many other religious obligations depend on this, as is known to any reasonable man. Shahak then goes on in, uh, in another one of these sections, dealing with the duty to help a Gentile slave, enslaved forever, or no, no, sorry, not help, a uh, little Freudian slip in there, on the duty to keep a Gentile slave enslaved forever, whereas a Jewish slave must be set free after seven years, the following explanation is given. At the root of this religious obligation is the fact that the, that the Jewish people are the best of the human species, created to know their creator and worship him, and worthy of having slaves to serve them. And if they will not have slaves of other peoples, they would have to enslave their brothers, who would thus be unable to serve the Lord, blessed be he. Therefore we are commanded to possess those for our service, after they are prepared for this, and after idolatry is removed from their speech. So that there should be no, uh, so that there should not be danger in our houses, and this is the intention of the verse. But over your brethren, the children of Israel, ye shall not rule over another with rigor, so that you will not have to enslave your brothers, who are all ready to worship God. Um. Yes. Well, if we don't have anything else to add, I I wanted to uh, bring this show's conclusion. Uh, to an end with a passage by Lobachowski in Political Panorology. It's called Truth is a Healer. And uh, what he says is this, and I think it's very much in line with uh, Shahak's whole um, philosophy in, in bringing out this information um, and, and wanting Jewish people of every stripe to understand what informs um, Israel and a and, uh, and understanding of Talmudic Judaism. <clears throat> Lobachevsky writes, it would be difficult to summarize here the statements of the many famous authors on the subject of psychotherapeutic role of making a person aware of what has crowded his subconscious, stifled within by constant painful effort because he feared to look an unpleasant truth in the eye, lacked the objective data to derive correct conclusions, or was too proud to permit the awareness that he had behaved in a preposterous fashion. In addition to being quite well understood by specialists, these matters have also become common knowledge to an adequate degree. 
in any method or technique of analytic psychotherapy or autonomous psychotherapy, as T. Satz would call it, the guiding operational motivation is exposing to the light of consciousness whatever material has been suppressed by means of subconscious selection of data or given up in the face of intellectual problems. This is accompanied by a disillusionment or substitutions and rationalizations whose creation is usually in proportion to the amount of repressed material. And you can hear, you can hear the rationalizations uh, even when they're not spoken among uh, many Jewish people who, who might on an intuitive or subconscious level understand that what Israel is doing wrong, even if they um, defend their actions vociferously. Lobachevsky continues, in many cases it turns out that the material fearfully eliminated from the field of consciousness and frequently substituted by ostensibly more comfortable associations would never have had such dangerous results if we had initially mustered the courage to perceive it consciously. We would then have been in the position to find an independent and often creative way out of the situation. In some cases, however, especially when dealing with phenomena which are hard to understand within the categories of our natural worldview, leading the patient out of his problems demands furnishing him with crucial objective data. This, I think, Israel Shahak's book is crucial objective data, usually from the areas of biology, psychology, and psychopathology, and indicating specific dependencies which he was unable to comprehend before. Instructional activity begins to dominate in psychotherapeutic work at this point. After all, the patient needs this additional data in order to reconstruct his disintegrated personality and form a new worldview more appropriate to reality. Only then can we go on to the more traditional methods. If our activities are to be for the benefit of the people who remained under the influence of pathocratic system, this last pattern of behavior is the most appropriate. The objective data furnished to the patients must derive from an understanding of the nature of the phenomena. In this case, classical Judaism, Talmudic Judaism, and Zionism. As already adduced, the author has been able to observe the workings of such a process of making someone consciously aware of the essence and properties of the macrosocial phenomenon on the basis of individual patients rendered neurotic by the influence of pathocratic social conditions. In countries ruled by such governments, almost every normal person carries within him some neurotic response of varying intensity. After all, neurosis is human nature's normal response to being subjugated to a pathological system. And we've talked about this before on the show. You know, you have the, uh, the former IDF soldiers coming together and breaking the silence who, who have gone, who have experienced a great deal of neuroticism and, and post-traumatic stress, knowing that, that what they were doing and what they were a part of uh, was evil. So part of the, part of the process of, of healing from that evil, I think, is in coming out and, and calling the, their actions and what they had seen and were a part of for what it is. Lopachowski continues, in spite of the anxiety which such courageous psychotherapeutic operations necessarily engendered on both sides, my patients quickly assimilated the objective data they were furnished, complemented them with their own experiences, and required additional information and verification of their applications of the information. 
spontaneous and creative reintegration of their personalities took place soon thereafter, accompanied by a similar reconstruction of their worldview. Subsequent psychotherapy merely continued assistance in this ever more autonomous process and in resolving individual problems. For example, a more traditional approach. These people lost their chronic tensions. Their perceptive view of this deviant reality became increasingly realistic and laced with humor. Reinforcement of their capacity to maintain their own psychological hygiene, self-therapy, and self-pedagogy was much better than expected. They became more resourceful in practical life matters and were able to offer others good advice. Unfortunately, the number of persons whom a psychotherapist could trust adequately was very limited. A similar effect should be attained on a micro-social scale, something technically feasible under present conditions. At such an operational scale, it will liberate spontaneous interaction among such enlightened individuals and the social multiplication of therapeutic phenomena. When I read that, I thought of the uh, boycott, divest, sanctions movement and how um, by Israel, Israeli leaders' own admission, it's a very dangerous movement precisely because it's bringing so much attention to what the real conditions on the ground are in Israel. And to conclude, the latter will then create a qualitatively new and most probably rather stormy social reaction. We should be prepared for this in order to calm it down. And, and that stormy reaction is all the governments of the West outlawing uh, BDS. They can't take it. Finally, this will bring an overall feeling of relaxation and a triumph of proper science over evil. This cannot be negated by any verbalistic means. And physical force also becomes meaningless. Using measures so different from anything utilized before will engender an end of an era, feeling during which macrosocial phenomena was able to emerge and develop, but is now dying. That would be accompanied by a sensation of well-being on the part of normal people. So I think that with every article, every conversation, every book read, every vote cast for boycott, divest, sanctions, every thumbs up on a YouTube video for breaking the silence. There is a, especially among those who have been ponderized by Zionism and a lot of the things we've been discussing today, uh, there's this therapeutic value, which, um, you know, just like a, just like a, a ponderizing thought can act in reverse, can, can bring greater awareness and lift the the consciousness of uh, an ever greater number of people. Um, and that's only for the good. So on that note, folks, uh, I want to thank my, uh, my co-host today and engineer, Adam Daniels, and Corey and Harrison, and uh, we appreciate you listening in. And don't forget to tune in to Newsreel with Joe and Neil, as well as Objective Health, next week and thanks again take care everybody bye bye bye